Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part three of The Pharisee Phenomenon. But before getting to the meat of tonight's podcast, I would like to give a personal message to listeners of Radio Free Mormon. Radio Free Mormon takes a lot of time researching, it takes a lot of time recording, and it takes a lot of time editing. I'm not here to lay a big guilt trip on you. I hope you enjoy what we present here at Radio Free Mormon, and if you do enjoy what you hear, please take the time right now to go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage and make a contribution. It doesn't have to be a lot, just make a small contribution. If everybody who listened to this podcast and enjoys it went to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage and made a monthly contribution of $10, that would help immensely in defraying the cost of production and frankly in commensurating yours truly a little bit for all the time and effort I put into this podcast. It is a joy to produce, but that doesn't mean it would be less of a joy to get paid a little bit on the side for doing it. You can use your credit card or your PayPal account to make that monthly contribution. And if you go to the RadioFreeMormon.org website to make your contribution, it is now set up so that those funds will be independently tracked as being contributed to Radio Free Mormon. So go ahead and put this podcast on pause right now and make that contribution. I assure you it will be greatly appreciated and it will help to guarantee that Radio Free Mormon will stay on the airwaves broadcasting behind enemy lines for the foreseeable future. Any contributions you make are tax deductible in the United States and I want to thank you sincerely for any financial contribution and support you can give to Radio Free Mormon. All right then, on to tonight's podcast, part three of The Pharisee Phenomenon. In parts one and two, we have gone over a number of examples of Phariseeism in the LDS Church. I have assembled a list of 12 such examples, and we have managed to go over five. Tonight, we'll see if we can speed through and cover the remaining seven examples. Example number six has to do with the order in which apostles enter and leave rooms. It may come as a surprise to learn that the apostles, the top 15 leaders in the LDS church, enter and leave rooms in order of seniority. Now, I've always known that seniority was a very important thing among the top 15 leaders of the church whenever they have a photo op, such as the one they recently had in Rome, Italy. The members of the 12 are seated in order of seniority. Also, in every general conference, the members of the 12 are seated in order of seniority with the First Presidency in a special, separate group of their own. And I suppose that makes a certain amount of sense when the person who is president of the church is the most senior apostle. In other words, the apostle who has been an apostle for the longest uninterrupted period of time. And we've already talked about how the apostles have the nicest seats in general conference, how they are a group set apart and above everyone else, how when they enter a room, all the other members are expected to stand to acknowledge in some way that superiority of their office. But even within the highest group of 15 leaders of the church, the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, there is a pecking order, and that pecking order is manifested both privately and publicly 
by the order in which they enter and leave rooms, not just the order in which they sit. Although I personally learned of this only recently, this strict adherence to the manner in which the apostles enter and leave rooms was announced by none other than Elder Russell M. Nelson in General Conference of 1993. Play the tape. Now for comments about the Stake High Council. It has no president. It has no autonomy and meets, even when divided into committees, only upon call of the Stake Presidency. Although High Councilors may be seated in the order of their call to the Council, no one member has seniority over another. In contrast, seniority is honored among ordained apostles even when entering or leaving a room. President Benson related to us this account. Some years ago, Elder Haight extended a special courtesy to President Romney while they were in the upper room in the temple. President Romney was lingering behind for some reason, and Elder Haight did not want to precede him out the door. When President Romney signaled for him to go first, Elder Haight replied, No, President, you go first. President Romney then replied with his humor, What's the matter, David? Are you afraid I'm going to steal something? Such deference from a junior to a senior apostle is recorded in the New Testament. When Simon Peter and John the Beloved ran to investigate the report that the body of their crucified Lord had been taken from the sepulcher, John, being younger and swifter, arrived first, yet he did not enter. He deferred to the senior apostle who entered the sepulcher first. A couple of comments about this quotation from Elder, now President, Russell M. Nelson. First is that, once again, this story invokes Elder David B. Haight of the Quorum of the Twelve as the protagonist. You will recall that Elder David Bednar, when talking about rising to pray in front of the Quorum of the Twelve and Apostles, similarly used an example from David B. Haight to show that this is something that was very important to do, that Elder David B. Haight, even though 97 years old at the time and in very poor health, insisted on standing to pray at a board meeting in front of the Apostles and the First Presidency. Here, Russell M. Nelson points to a story once again featuring David B. Haight as the exemplar par excellence in deference to his senior Apostles. The second thing I wanted to point out is that Elder Nelson sees as support for this position a story in the Gospel of John. He says, Such deference from a junior to a senior apostle is recorded in the New Testament when Simon Peter and John the Beloved ran to investigate the report that the body of their crucified Lord had been taken from the sepulcher, John being younger and swifter, arrived first. Notice that he says John was younger than Peter. Yet he did not enter. He deferred to the senior apostle who entered the sepulcher First, once again, Elder Nelson sees this as an example from the Gospels as to how a younger apostle defers to a senior apostle in entering a room. In this case, the room was the sepulcher in which the body of Jesus was placed after his crucifixion. I went back and I checked out this story, and perhaps not surprisingly, there is nothing in this story that mentions John the Beloved as being younger 
than Peter. First off, there's nothing that identifies the beloved disciple as being John in this entire gospel. But more importantly, for purposes of this discussion, there is nothing in the story that says that John was younger than Peter, even if we assume that the beloved disciple was John. Here is the story as it is recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 2 through 6. Then she runneth, that would be Mary the first one at the tomb, then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Once again, see, there's no reference to his name being John. It is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. Notice so far, nothing about the other disciple being younger than Peter. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie. That's the story from the gospel. Once again, no reference to John the other disciple, the one who is faster than Peter, being younger than Peter. And yet that does not stop Elder Nelson from seeing in it a scriptural verification and corroboration of the insistence by modern apostles of entering and leaving rooms in order of seniority. Now, most of us would look at this type of attitude of the senior apostles and see them entering and leaving the church as something that is not that important. In fact, from the story Russell M. Nelson himself tells, it sounds like Marion G. Romney did not think it was that important because when Marion G. Romney, then in the first presidency, saw Elder David B. Haight hanging around the room, he signaled to him to go first. So obviously it wasn't that important to President Romney, and yet it was so important to President Haight that he insisted on staying in the room until such time as Elder Romney, his senior apostle, left the room. As I say, it doesn't sound like it's that important to most people, including Marion G. Romney, but it is that important to Russell M. Nelson. Here's what he says at the end of his talk about how important this is. Play the tape. If any among us are also guilty of treating as trivial such things that are sacred, we may repent and resolve to honor the priesthood and those to whom the Lord has entrusted its keys. He goes on to say that if we treat such trivial things as being trivial, we can repent of this, which means it would be a sin for us to think that something that seems so trivial is in fact trivial. It is important. It is essential to the way that God runs his kingdom. So we can see how important this is to President Nelson, the order in which apostles enter and leave rooms. It will not be forgotten that it was in the same year that President Nelson weighed in on how important it was to refer to the church not as the LDS church, not as the Mormon church, but as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Something that now that he is the president of the church and in a position to enforce it on everybody else, he has wasted no time in doing exactly that. So under President Nelson, things that other people might see as trivial become exceedingly important. From using the correct name of the church all the way down to the order in which the apostles enter and leave rooms. Once again, note that this talk was given in 1993. That's important for another reason. A similar talk was given two years later by Elder Boyd K. Packer in 1995, which was titled The Unwritten Order of Things. Now, I had heard of the Unwritten Order of Things talk given by Elder Packer in 1995, but I had not, prior to doing research for this podcast, 
heard of this 1993 talk by Elder Russell M. Nelson. There are a number of similarities between the two talks. For example, these are the first lines of Elder Nelson's talk. Brethren, relatively little is written on my subject, yet we're all expected to know about it. I speak of honoring the priesthood. Elder Nelson goes on to talk about how important protocol is. Yes, these violations of protocol are what Elder Nelson sees as sins that need to be repented of. By the end of his talk, he goes on to say, President Ezra Taft Benson, who was president at the time he gave this talk in 1993, President Ezra Taft Benson has specifically asked us to follow proper priesthood protocol. And you know it's important when you get three words in a row that start with the same letter, especially the letter P. Alliteration signals sacredness. President Ezra Taft Benson has specifically asked us to follow proper priesthood protocol. Principles, oh, he sneaks in a fourth one there. Principles, he noted, that many of us have learned by observation while listening to senior brethren. He said, protocol is a long-established practice prescribing complete deference to an order of correct procedure. And then Elder Nelson shifts from quoting President Benson to stating, I will quote from President Benson and other leaders because, as you will note, much of my message pertains to that protocol. Now, this is how Elder Packer began his address, The Unwritten Order of Things, in his 1996 BYU devotional. By the way, earlier I said it was 1995. It's actually 1996. Here's how he starts it off. Notice the similarity. The things I am going to tell you are not explained in our handbooks or manuals either. Even if they were, most of you don't have handbooks not the Melchizedek Priesthood or Relief Society handbooks and the others, because they are given only to the leader. So the things I'm going to talk about are not written in these manuals, and you don't have access to these manuals anyway because you're probably not in the leadership, and only the leadership gets these manuals. Can you see another element of hierarchy sneaking in here? You have to have a certain position of leadership in the church before you even have access to these manuals. I will be speaking about, Elder Packer continues, I will be speaking about what I call the unwritten order of things. My lesson might be entitled, The Ordinary Things About the Church Which Every Member Should Know. Although they are very ordinary things, they are nevertheless very important. Unquote. So see how Elder Packer in 1996 says both that the things he's going to talk about are not written, but they are very important. And Elder Nelson in 1993 General Conference says, Brethren, relatively little is written on my subject. He refers to it, quoting President Benson as proper priesthood protocol, and then says at the end of his talk, if any among us are also guilty of treating as trivial such things that are sacred, we may repent and resolve to honor the priesthood and those to whom the Lord has entrusted its keys. Another similarity between these two talks is that although both of them are going to be talking about the unwritten order of things and thus making them written, it seems that these unwritten things typically and predominantly deal with deference that we give to priesthood leaders and how we go about doing that. I am not going to read through Elder Packer's talk from 1996, The Unwritten Order of Things, but I recommend it to you. I am simply going to bullet point a number of things that he talks about. Number one, he says, a new stake president sometimes will ask, must I sit on the stand in every meeting in the stake? May I not sit with my family? I tell him, while you preside, you are to sit on the stand. I am tempted to say, but I don't. I can't have that privilege. Why should you? So while Elder Packer makes it look like a big burden on the stake president to sit in front of the stand 
and for all leaders to sit on the stand. And in some sense, it may be a burden. Nevertheless, remember that it was the Pharisees that took the chief seats in the synagogue in order to be seen of others. The second example Elder Packer gives is, if you watch the first presidency, you will see that the first counselor always sits on the right of the president, the second counselor on the left. That is a demonstration of doing things decently and in order, as Paul told us. So here in the second example, Elder Packer tells us that the way in which the first presidency sits, and also the stake presidency sits, and then also the bishopric sits, is supposed to be done decently and in order. And by that he means first counselor on the right, second counselor on the left. It's not written, but it's important. You've got to do it this way. So notice there are rules within rules. Not only do the leaders sit in raised seats in front of the congregation, they must sit in a certain formation. Not only are the leaders above the members, the way in which the leaders sit signal the order of seniority among the leaders themselves. The third example Elder Packer gives is, quote, ordinarily, but not always, if the presiding officer speaks, see how this always comes back to who is the presiding officer. If the presiding officer speaks, it will be at the end of the meeting. So the presiding officer must speak at the end of the meeting, not at the beginning of the meeting, not in the middle of the meeting, but at the end of the meeting when the most important person speaks. Why does Elder Packer insist on this? Because he says, then clarification or correction can be given. I have had that experience many times at the close of meetings. Well, brother or sister, somebody said such and such, and I'm sure they meant such and such. So the presiding officer speaks at the end of the meeting specifically because they are superior. They know best, regardless of their level of learning in the gospel, simply because of their position in the church. They go last so they can correct anybody else who may have gone before who made a boo-boo. And yet, I will tell you that in my 40 years of attending church, I cannot recall one instance in which a presiding officer going last corrected any speaker who went before. I'm sure it's happened somewhere, sometime. And Elder Packer says he's done it many times. I'm just saying I can't remember once. Now notice that President Nelson in his 1993 General Conference talk said something similar to what Elder Packer says here. This is what President Nelson said in 1993. When a presiding general authority has spoken, no one speaks following him. After the meeting has concluded, presidents and bishops, and here he's talking specifically to the stake presidents and the bishops. After the meeting has concluded, presidents and bishops remain at the side of your file leader until excused. He may be impressed to give additional teaching or direction, and you may also prevent problems. Well, what problems is it that bishops or stake presidents might be able to prevent by remaining by the side of their file leader, i.e. their general authority, in a meeting where the general authority is present? He gives us an example. For example, if a member asks a question of your leader that should not be directed to him, you are there to respond. Unquote. What on earth is President Nelson talking about in that last sentence? He doesn't say. What question might a member ask a leader that should not be asked to the leader, that should not be directed at him? I, for the life of me, cannot imagine a church in which any member could ask a question of a leader, a general authority leader, that should not be directed to him. And yet, Russell M. Nelson obviously believes that there are some questions that are off-limits for members to ask leaders. 
At a minimum, this once again shows that general authorities are superior to the members and local authorities, not only on the basis of where they sit and in what order they sit, but that members might have some questions that are inappropriate to ask the general authority and that should be answered only by the local authority. Once again, I would love to know what Elder Nelson is talking about here, but he does not elucidate. Example number four, going back to Boyd K. Packer's talk, example number four talks about the order in which members should seek blessings and counsel from their leaders. First, it says we should go to our immediate priesthood leader, i.e. our father, if we want to get a blessing or for counsel. He goes on to say when they are no longer available, if it is a blessing, then we may go to our home teacher. In other words, we go to our home teacher first. We don't go to the bishop. We don't go to a counselor. God forbid we should go to the state president. And we're never going to be able to get a hold of a general authority. But this is the order in which we go. If it is a blessing, then we may go to our home teacher. For counsel, you go to your bishop. He may choose to send you to his file leader, the state president. But we do not go to the general authorities. We do not write them for counsel or suppose that someone in a more prominent position will give a more inspired blessing. If we could get this one thing taught in the church, great power would rest upon us. I'm not sure why great power rests upon us. What it seems to show is that the general authorities are too busy to respond to requests for blessings from the average member or to give counsel to the average member. Now I understand that general authorities are by virtue of their position extremely busy and they could not possibly have time to answer every letter from every member requesting counsel or asking questions about church history or church doctrine. That much is obvious to me. And yet I do not see why Elder Packer says if we could get this one thing taught in the church, great power would rest upon us. At a minimum, we see once again that there is a chain of command. Notice how he always uses the term file leader. That means the guy right above you in the chain of command. There is a chain of command and we are not to address general authorities directly. That may be done only by their local leaders, not by the lay members. The bishop can talk to the state president. The state president then can talk to an Area 70 general authority, and an Area 70 can talk to an apostle. And so it goes up the chain of command. We do not break that chain of command. We do not do an end run around that chain of command. Example number five, Elder Packer gives us another example in the unwritten order of things. Once again, this has to do with hierarchy, but applies to revelation. He says, revelation in the church is vertical. It generally confines itself to the administrative or geographic boundaries or limitations assigned to the one who is called. For instance, a bishop who is trying to solve a problem will not get revelation by counseling with a bishop from another ward or stake to whom he is related or with whom he might work at the office. Now that's really interesting. A bishop cannot get revelation or apparently any kind of insight that might be helpful from another bishop even though he might be related to this other bishop or even though he might work with this other bishop at the office. It is extremely structured. Elder Packer goes on, My experience has taught me that revelation comes from above not from the side. However more experienced or older or however more spiritual someone to the side may appear to be, it is better to go up through proper channels. Now why is that? Is it because that a person who is older, more experienced, to the side as he puts it, might not have something of value to suggest to you that might be a good idea? No, obviously that can happen. Obviously that would happen. That is the way things happen. And if it can happen, why should we shut ourselves off from seeking such counsel and such possibilities and such revelation 
if indeed we are trying to figure out a problem on the home front. Well, the reason for Elder Packer is not because it might be helpful, but rather because it is better to go up through proper channels. And the reason it is better to go up through proper channels is simply because it is better to go up through proper channels. We have a slavish obedience being manifest here to the hierarchy that is established in church callings. It is form over substance. It is hierarchy over help. It is Phariseeism over revelation. Elder Packer gives us another point of order. This is number six in his list of the unwritten order of things. And this is where he talks about meetings in church and how bishops are in charge and how bishops should not let family members talk at missionary farewells and should not even let family members talk at funerals for crying out loud. These meetings are church meetings. We don't talk about the person going on the mission. We don't talk about the person who has just passed away. Instead, we talk about the gospel, the gospel, and the gospel. Here's what he says. Bishops should not yield the arrangement of meetings to members. They should not yield the arrangement for funerals or missionary farewells to families. It is not the proper order of things for members or families to expect to decide who will speak and for how long. Suggestions are in order, of course, but the bishop should not turn the meeting over to them. We are worried about the drift that is occurring in our meetings. Funerals could and should be the most spiritually impressive, he goes on. They are becoming informal family reunions in front of ward members. Often the spirit is repulsed by humorous experiences or jokes. See, Holy Ghost does not like jokes. No sense of humor there for the Holy Ghost. Often the spirit is repulsed by humorous experiences or jokes when the time could be devoted to teaching the things of the spirit, even the sacred things. When the family insists that several family members speak in a funeral, we hear about the deceased instead of about the atonement, the resurrection, and the comforting promises revealed in the scriptures. So from Elder Packer's point of view, you're having a funeral and you're not supposed to hear about the guy who's dead. I mean, that's what most people would think a funeral was for, but not for Elder Packer. No, instead you're supposed to talk about the scriptures. You're supposed to turn a funeral into a sacrament meeting without the sacrament. Elder Packer says, now it's all right to have a family member speak at a funeral. Oh, you mean it's okay to actually have a family member speak at a funeral? Well, that's quite a concession, Elder Packer. But, he says, but if they do, their remarks should be in keeping with the spirit of the meeting. So it's okay to have a family member speak at the funeral, but the family member shouldn't be talking about the person who has died. In other words, the relative who's there in the casket in front of the family member. The family member can speak, but don't be talking about that guy in the casket in front of you. And in his last paragraph on this subject, about which he appears to feel strongly, this is where he says that the reason that we do this is to reach out and touch non-member or inactive family members of the deceased in order to try and preach the gospel to them so that we can convert them while they are in a spiritually and emotionally vulnerable state of mind. I mean, just having lost a family member, right? I have told my brethren in that day when my funeral is held, if any of them who speak talk about me, I will raise up and correct them. The gospel is to be preached. I know of no meeting where the congregation is in a better state of readiness to receive revelation and inspiration from a speaker than they are at a funeral. This privilege is being taken away from us because we don't understand the order of things, the unwritten order of things, that relates to the administration of the church and the reception 
of the spirit. So the reason we don't talk about the deceased at funerals is because funerals, like every other meeting in the church, is a missionary opportunity. I will tell you from my personal experience, I believe that more non-members and even members are put off by the refusal of bishops to allow family members to talk about the deceased at funerals, that more members are put off by this attitude and practice of the LDS Church than would otherwise be if they just talked about the deceased. Example number seven, our bishops. Our bishops should not give our meetings away. This is true of our missionary farewells. So it's not just the funerals, it's also the missionary farewells. We're deeply worried, says Elder Packer, we're deeply worried that they now have become kind of reunions in front of ward members. Man, Elder Packer really hates family reunions. The depth of spiritual training and teaching which could go on is being lost. We have failed to remember that it is a sacrament meeting and that the bishop presides. So a missionary is giving two years of his life or a year and a half of her life if it's a sister missionary. But a guy is giving two years and he can't have two hours for his family to say goodbye in church. Okay, that makes sense, Elder Packer. Number eight on his list. There are many things I could say about such matters as wearing Sunday best. Do you know what Sunday best means? It used to be the case. Now we see ever more informal, even slouchy clothing in our meetings, even in sacrament meeting. That leads to informal and slouchy conduct. So just like Jesus said, it's the clothes you wear that matter. This also plays into our discussion earlier about white shirts and why it is that we wear white shirts to church. We wear our Sunday best. We wear white shirts. It is important that we signal by our clothing our righteousness, our non-slouchiness, and our virtue in meetings. And whether it's intended or not, it allows us to look down on those who do not conform to our rigid clothing requirements. Finally, Elder Packer takes issue with referring to people who are speaking in church by their first name on the programs. It bothers me to see on a sacrament meeting program that Liz and Bill and Dave will participate. Ought it not to be Elizabeth and William and David? It bothers me more to be asked, it bothers him even more than this, it bothers me more to be asked to sustain Buck or Butch or Chuck to the High Council. I just say, can't we have the full names on that important record, complete with middle initial of course, can't we just have the full names on that important record? There is a formality, a dignity that we are losing. Dignity. Always dignity. And it is at great cost. There is something to what Paul said about doing things decently and in order. So once again, Elder Packer goes back to Paul's comment about doing things decently and in order as a carte blanche for him to write whatever he wants to in that blank space and say, this is the way God wants it done. And if we don't do it that way, we are losing dignity and it is at great cost. We should not refer to members of the church by their first name, which makes me think of a hymn. Um, million shall know brother who again? Oh, that's right. Never mind. So in conclusion to our example number six, we talked about President Nelson in 1993 General Conference outlining the fact that there are certain unwritten things about the order of the priesthood that are very important. They are not trivial. If we don't do them, then we need to repent. And that one of those things has to do with the order in which the apostles enter and leave rooms. And then we segued into 
the very similar talk given by Elder Packer three years later at a BYU devotional called The Unwritten Order of Things, in which Elder Packer goes even further and lists nine such things that he thinks are important. We've gone over those nine things within Elder Packer's talk, and you can see how so many of them have to do with this structure, this hierarchy, this Phariseeism in the LDS Church, a Phariseeism that Elder Packer sees as every bit as important as Russell M. Nelson sees. Oh my gosh, it looks like I forgot at least one more item on Boyd K. Packer's list of the unwritten order of things. Another thing he has in there is that we accept callings whenever they are extended to us. We do not ask questions. We do not refuse a calling. We simply accept it. By doing so, we acknowledge the superiority of our leaders to make determinations for us as to what we can do right now in our lives. It doesn't make any difference if we are jammed with kids and school and work that we don't have a free moment in order to take on this new calling that's been extended to us. We simply say, thank you, we'll do it. When the priesthood leaders say, jump, we ask, how high. That is part of the unwritten order of things. And we hear this teaching from time to time on a regular basis in the church. Most recently, I recall President Eyring talking about this very thing in priesthood session of General Conference a couple of years ago. And so you can see how there are a great many things in this unwritten order of things that Boyd K. Packer and President Nelson talk about. These are things that are not found in the scriptures. These are things that are simply made up along the way by leaders of the church and then imposed upon the members as if they were scripture. This is the same thing as what the Pharisees were talking to Jesus about. In Matthew 15, we've already talked about how Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands before they ate and that that was a ritual washing of hands, not soap and water as we think of it today. Anciently, they did not have our modern concepts of hygiene. Now, you can look through the Law of Moses, i.e., you can look through the Jewish scriptures in vain to find anything that requires people wash their hands ritually before eating. And that is why the Pharisees did not point to any scripture when they upbraided Jesus for his disciples not washing their hands before they ate. Instead, they talked about the tradition of of the elders. You recall Matthew 15 verse 1, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. So the Pharisees at that time created new rules and regulations not found in the scriptures and then imposed them upon the Jewish people as if they had the full force and efficacy of Scripture. A similar thing happens in the LDS Church, and we've gone over a number of those examples, particularly in the unwritten order of things. These are items not found in the Scripture that are created by leaders of the Church. These are the tradition of the elders, which are then imposed upon members of the Church as if they were scriptural. Well, that has taken a great deal more time than I expected talking about the unwritten order of things. But that only goes to show that in the LDS Church, there is a long list of unwritten order of things to talk about. The next number on my list is number seven, and it has to do with priesthood keys. Now, you may be wondering, how do priesthood keys have to do with Phariseeism? Let me try to explain why I see it as fitting in. First off, you have to understand what priesthood keys are. Over and over again, in priesthood meetings and in general conference, 
We hear talks about priesthood keys. It is a very important subject for church leaders to talk to its members about. And when we understand what they mean by priesthood keys, we can understand why the leadership wants to make sure the members know what these priesthood keys are. Now, priesthood keys are different from priesthood authority. Let's give a simple example. Priesthood authority means that if a man has the priesthood, he has the authority to perform certain ordinances. If he has the Aaronic priesthood, he has the authority to perform certain ordinances related to the Aaronic priesthood, which are primarily baptism and the blessing and passing of the sacrament. If he has the Melchizedek priesthood, then he has the authority to perform higher ordinances, such as the confirmation of a newly baptized member into the church and bestowing the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now that is the authority to perform those ordinances, but a person who has that authority is not allowed to perform those ordinances unless he has the permission from somebody higher above him to perform the ordinance. And that permission to perform the ordinance is granted only by a person who has the keys of the priesthood. So the keys of the priesthood means the ability of a church leader to give permission to somebody else to perform an ordinance. Now, I have the authority to baptize somebody, but I don't have the keys to do it. So therefore, I cannot go out and baptize somebody without getting permission from the bishop to do it. Similarly, I have the authority to bless and pass the sacrament, but I do not have the keys to do it. I am not allowed to bless and pass the sacrament unless I get permission from my bishop, or in other words, the man with the keys, to do it. And so these keys become very important to the leadership of the church because it is the means by which they maintain control over all the other priesthood holders in the church. And in fact, when you hear a talk about priesthood keys, you will frequently hear that word used, control. It is the ability to permit someone to perform an ordinance, but the other side of that coin is that if they have the ability to permit someone to do it, they also have the ability to not permit somebody to do it. Whatever the holders of the priesthood keys can do for you, they can also do to you. And so when people go out and start baptizing other people without permission from priesthood leaders, those with the keys, it starts getting the church upset. For example, when followers of the remnant movement, the movement associated with Denver Snuffer, go out and start baptizing people or rebaptizing people without permission, this gets the leaders of the church upset. Similarly, followers of the remnant movement go out and have sacrament. They bless and they pass the sacrament in their own meetings, separate and apart from official church meetings. This similarly gets leaders upset. The leaders get their knickers in a twist. And the reason is because they have members of the church who have the authority of the priesthood going out and performing priesthood ordinances without permission from those who hold the keys. Now this idea of keys of the priesthood is not something that has been well defined from the inception of the church. It is something that has developed over time as a means of controlling the members of the church and making sure that they stay in line with what the leaders of the church allow them to do. In one sense, we can understand that having this idea of keys of the priesthood is necessary in order for an organization such as the LDS Church to maintain control over its members and the ordinances that they perform. It is a means of attempting to guard against offshoots and splinter groups. But on the other hand, I cannot help but notice that this is a means of exerting control over the members of the church 
by the leaders. And this is why it seems to me that it fits in in our discussion of Phariseeism in the LDS Church. And it comes into sharper focus when we look at an exchange between the Pharisees and Jesus as recorded in Matthew chapter 11. Now Jesus was performing all sorts of miracles. We know this. Jesus had now come riding triumphantly into Jerusalem. And the Pharisees encounter Jesus in Jerusalem and they want to pick a fight. They take issue with Jesus performing all these miracles, with his coming riding into Jerusalem, with his followers laying down palm fronds in front of him. And the thing the Pharisees want to argue with Jesus about is not whether he performs miracles. They know he performs miracles. It is indisputable he has done it right in front of their very eyes. No, instead, the Pharisees want to argue with Jesus about what authority he has to be doing these things. And in this way, it comes to look an awful lot like a dispute about priesthood authority. The Pharisees don't like what Jesus is doing, even though it's obvious he has the power of God. And therefore, they want to argue with him about what authority he has to do these things. He certainly didn't get the authority from the Pharisees, and that is the only way a person could get authority, at least from the point of view of the Pharisees. Here's what it says, Matthew 11, verse 27. And they come again to Jerusalem, and as he, Jesus, was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And in verse 28, they ask him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? To do these things. So you can see that for the Pharisees, it wasn't what he was doing that was important. It was whether he had the authority to do these things. And who gave you this authority? Because we sure didn't give you this authority, and we're the only ones who can give you this authority because the Pharisees saw themselves as having the equivalent of the LDS version of priesthood keys. Who gave you the authority to do these things? And Jesus answered, and of course he answers him not with a real answer, he answers them with a question. And in verse 29 it says, Jesus answered and said unto them, I will ask of you one question, and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's the question that Jesus asks. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. So now Jesus takes this to a whole new level. He brings up John the Baptist, and mainly he brings him up because John was extremely popular with the people, and he knows that the Pharisees aren't going to want to create a riot by saying something bad against John. But the very fact that Jesus brings up the baptisms that John the Baptist performed as an issue in this very context suggests that John did not have authority from the Pharisees to perform the baptisms that he was performing. That's why this passage is so radioactive to the Mormon idea of priesthood keys. If John did not have authority from the priesthood leaders to perform baptisms, and yet Jesus seems to be citing this instance with approval, in other words, Jesus is saying, John did not need to have your authority to perform baptisms. He didn't have it from you. So you tell me, was this from heaven or was it of men? You answer me. And of course, the Pharisees reason with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we shall say of men, they feared the people, for all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. So that's why the Pharisees hastily changed the subject and do not pursue this line of questioning as recounted in Matthew chapter 11. But once again, the story illustrates 
that Jesus was completely open to the idea and supportive of the idea of John the Baptist receiving authority to perform baptisms separate and apart from the priesthood leadership of the church in Jesus' day. John did not need to receive the authority to perform baptisms from the Pharisees. He didn't have to go ask them for that authority. He did not need to submit to their priesthood keys he was able to receive authority separate and apart from the priesthood leadership of his day, independently and directly from God. And so you can see why it is that I fit this idea of priesthood keys in the LDS Church as number seven on my list of 12 signs of Phariseeism in the modern LDS Church. Example number eight has to do with Sabbath day observance. So what does Sabbath day observance have to do with Phariseeism. Well, one of the main components, as we've discussed, of Phariseeism is this idea that there is a basic law that everybody is supposed to obey. But then along come the Pharisees and they start adding additional elements to this law to show greater righteousness, greater religiosity. And in some cases, they continue to stack these made-up requirements, one on top of the other, until they have rendered something as simple as keeping the Sabbath day holy into something that is massively complicated. Now I have to give it to the Pharisees in Jesus' day that they had gone the extra mile on Sabbath day observance when it came to the complexities of what one could do and what one could not do on the Sabbath day. But then, historically speaking, I suppose the Pharisees had a lot more time to complicate the issue than the LDS Church has so far. And in Jesus' time, the Pharisees had made keeping the Sabbath day holy sufficiently complicated that it was a violation of the Sabbath day to pick heads of grain on the Sabbath. This is Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. Now you might think, reading this, well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is, is that now the Pharisees have made keeping the Sabbath day so holy and made it so intricate and complicated and so hyper-religious that even doing the simple act of picking heads of grain on the Sabbath day was similar to harvesting, was similar to work, was similar to not keeping the Sabbath day holy. You see how it goes. So the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answers, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? So Jesus cites to an example from the Old Testament in which David and his followers did the exact same kind of thing. So he's going to tell the story with the idea that if the Pharisees are going to criticize Jesus for breaking the Sabbath by picking heads of grain in order to get food, then they are similarly going to have to criticize King David from the Old Testament for doing the same thing. And in this way, Jesus sort of implicitly equates himself with King David in the process. So once again, Jesus' answer have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he, David, entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. So David's not doing this on the Sabbath, but he is eating something that is only lawful for priests to eat. He and his followers are not priests. He is breaking the law of God, and yet it's David doing it. And Jesus says, not only did David do it, he also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus says to the Pharisees, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So this idea, the Sabbath is made for man. 
and yet you've taken it and added all these elements to it that make it so that man is made for the Sabbath. Man is controlled by the Sabbath, not the Sabbath being there as a benefit to mankind. Instead, mankind has become slave to the Sabbath, at least to your hyper-religious interpretation of the Sabbath. And within the LDS Church, we can see different kinds of permutations about this idea of keeping the Sabbath day holy. Do you watch TV on the Sabbath? Well, if you do, you are of a lesser order of righteousness than the Mormon who does not watch TV on the Sabbath. Do you listen to non-church music on the Sabbath? Well, if so, you are a less righteous Mormon than one who does not listen to non-church music on the Sabbath. Do you wear your church clothes all day long on the Sabbath? Not just the church, but at home as well. If you do not wear your church clothes all day long, you are a lesser order of Mormon. If you do wear your church clothes all day long, you are a more righteous form of Mormon. So even within Mormonism, we can see this element of Phariseeism creeping into the way in which different Mormons keep the Sabbath day holy. And in much the way that Jesus asked the Pharisees whether man was made for the Sabbath or the Sabbath was made for man, we as members of the LDS Church might want to ponder the question, are the members made for the LDS Church or is the LDS Church made for the members? In other words, do we exist for the Church or does the Church exist for us? That's a good question to ponder the next time we're cleaning the bathrooms of our local ward building on Saturday morning especially when we keep in mind the thought that the LDS Church has $32 billion, that's billion with a B, invested in the stock market. Is the LDS Church made for the members, or are the members made for the LDS Church? Your call. So Sabbath day observance was number eight. Number nine is pay your tithing. Once again, we see a similar thing happen with tithing as we see happening with the Sabbath. It is a general commandment understood within the LDS Church that members are to pay their tithing. But what does that mean? That is the question. How much tithing are you supposed to pay? Do you pay tithing on your net income or on your gross income? I think we've all heard people in church talk about, well, do you want net blessings or do you want gross blessings? With the idea <laughs> gross blessings. I'm sorry. That just struck me as funny. Do you want net blessings or do you want gross blessings? In other words, if you pay only on your net, you can expect net blessings. But if you pay on your gross, then you can expect more blessings. You can expect gross blessings. I think that's how the term gross is being used in that context. There is a more righteous way to pay tithing, you see. The more you pay, the more righteous you are. And remember that this discussion all comes up in the context of the scripture that says that we are supposed to pay tithing on our increase. And Rock Waterman has written a blog which has achieved some notoriety on his webpage called Pure Mormonism regarding this very issue in which he argues for the position that the scriptures teach that tithing is supposed to be paid not on your gross and not even on your net, but upon that amount of your income which is in excess of what you need to pay for your expenses, for your bills, for your food. After you've paid for all the necessities, the amount that is left over is the increase, and that is the amount on which tithing is supposed to be paid. I think we can all understand why the LDS Church is not enamored with Rock Waterman's interpretation of the law of tithing. But taking this idea of how much tithing to pay to a whole new level, 
Wendy Nelson, yes, the wife, the second wife, the second plural wife of President Russell M. Nelson, suggested that we pay even more than net, even more than gross. In a young adult devotional broadcast in January of 2016, Wendy Nelson tells a story about former church leader and apostle George Q. Cannon, who went to his bishop for tithing settlement and paid an enormous amount of money, much more than a tenth of the gross of what he had earned that year. His bishop knew that, and his bishop asks him, Hey, George, how come you're paying so much tithing? This is more than a tenth of what you made this year. And George Q. Cannon tells the bishop, Well, look, I'm not paying tithing on what I made this year. I'm paying tithing on what I want to make next year. And Wendy Nelson assures us that the end of the story is very happy for George Q. Cannon indeed, and that the following year he made exactly the amount on which he had paid tithing the previous year. That's how good the law of tithing is. Play the tape. When we're desperate to be physically healthy, we eat and exercise accordingly. No excuses. When we're desperate to have more money, we eagerly follow the Lord's law of finances, which is, of course, tithing. Consider President George Q. Cannon's approach to tithing when he was an impoverished young man. When his bishop commented on the large amount of tithing poor young George was paying, George said something like, Oh, Bishop, I'm not paying tithing on what I make. I'm paying tithing on what I want to make. And the very next year, George earned exactly the amount of money he had paid tithing on the year before. So you can see that if you want to be an okay Mormon, you can pay on your increase. If you want to be a better Mormon or a more righteous Mormon, you can pay on your net. If you want to be a better Mormon still, you pay it on your gross. And if you want to be a super Mormon, the most righteous Mormon of all, you pay it on what you want to make the following year, just as George Q. Cannon did. One other small comment here is that part of this process of tithing is that we have a tithing settlement every year. And in addition to answering certain questions in order to get a temple recommend, one of the questions that we have to answer in order to get a temple recommend is whether we pay an honest tithing. If we do not pay an honest tithing, we do not get the card that says that we can go to the temple. If we do pay an honest tithing, then we can get this card that allows us to go to the temple. And so here's this idea once again of having Mormons as a group of people who are obviously more righteous than the non-Mormons, but even within that group of people, we have less righteous and more righteous Mormons. And the more righteous Mormons are those who have the card that allows them to go to the temple, i.e. the temple recommend, temple-going Mormons. They are the more righteous form of Mormons. They are a circle within this circle. And in some ways, we can see Phariseeism as the idea of creating circles within circles within circles within a religious community. And the more righteous you are, the more you are qualified to enter into these inner circles. These inner circles are taken to such an extreme in the LDS Church that there is a secret inner circle involving those who have received the second anointing. It is a secret that they have received it and they are supposed to keep it secret. There may be people in your own ward who have received the second anointing. There may be members in your own family who have received this second anointing, but you would not know it because they are not supposed to tell you. And the second anointing is the highest ordinance by which those who receive it are assured of eternal life. They are bound up to the celestial kingdom. There is nothing they can do 
with a couple of exceptions, that will cause them to lose their exaltation. So you can start to get an idea as to how many inner circles exist within the LDS Church. There are circles within circles, and membership in the inner circles means that in some real sense, you are superior to and a cut above the other members of the church who do not belong in the inner circles. But back to the subject of tithing. Tithing, as you know, is extremely important in the LDS Church. In fact, it is more important to pay your tithing than it is to pay anything else regardless of your financial condition. In the December Enzyme of 2012, we find the following. Quote, if paying tithing means that you can't pay for water or electricity, pay tithing. If you can't pay for your water, you pay your tithing. If you can't pay for your electricity to keep the lights on or the heat going, you pay your tithing. The article goes on, if paying tithing means that you can't pay your rent, pay tithing. That's right, if you can't pay your rent and you are looking at becoming homeless and being thrown out in the street, it is more important that you pay tithing than you pay your rent. The article goes on, even if paying tithing means that you don't have enough money to feed your family, pay tithing. That's right, that's what the article says. Even if paying tithing means that you don't have enough money to feed your family, pay tithing. So if you don't have enough money to put food on the table for your children, you are supposed to pay your tithing to the church. As I said, we find this remarkable counsel and advice in the December 2012 Enzyme magazine. It is in an article titled Sacred Transformations by Aaron L. West of the Church Publishing Services Department. And it is an article that was written as a retrospective and a celebration of the San Salvador El Salvador Temple and the effect that it had had on the lives of members of the church in the area. The article focuses on a family named Vigil. That's their last name, V-I-G-I-L. And although it covers a number of different aspects of their story about becoming members of the church and their experience after becoming members of the church, the part about tithing is found in a subsection called Changes and Blessings. Here is that part of the article. Amado, Evelyn, and Michelle, these are the three members of the Vigil family. They were baptized and confirmed in early July 2010. Evelyn says, From the time that we were baptized, I could feel that everything started to change. My family was united in the church. We had found the restored gospel. We have had trials and sickness since then, but our Heavenly Father has poured many blessings on us. So everything's going great as far as they're joining the church with their family. The article goes on, The Vigil's bishop, Caesar Orellana, also saw changes in their lives. Soon after their baptism, Amado, that is the husband of the family, Amado Vigil, approached Bishop Orellana and said, We want to pay tithing, but we don't know how. Well, actually, paying tithing is a very simple thing, as President Monson often reminded us. It's 10 cents on every dollar and a penny on every dime. So when they say, we don't know how to pay tithing, what they mean is, we can't afford to pay tithing. We don't know how we're going to be able to pay tithing because we don't make enough money to make ends meet. And when their bishop explained that tithing was 10% of their increase, Amado was somewhat concerned. At the time, Evelyn, his wife, had a job, but he did not. We always came up short, Amado 
to explain to his bishop, but we want to pay tithing. So the bishop responded, Brother, the Lord has made many promises. And then his bishop quoted from Malachi 3.10, the one that says that if you pay your tithing, the Lord will open up you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing so great that there shall not be room to receive it. Well, even though that is the promise adopted by the church and taught to its members, the vigil's experience was a little bit different. After reading these scriptures, the bishop looked at the new convert and said, and this is the quote we just gave before, quote, If paying tithing means that you can't pay for water or electricity, pay tithing. If paying tithing means that you can't pay your rent, pay tithing. Even if paying tithing means that you don't have enough money to feed your family, pay tithing. The Lord will not abandon you. The next Sunday, Amato Vigil approaches his bishop again. This time he didn't ask any questions. He simply handed his bishop an envelope and said, Bishop, here is our tithing. Reflecting on this experience, the bishop says, Ever since then they have been faithful tithe payers. The article goes on, The family received some commodities from the bishop's storehouse during their financial difficulties. So this was not an experience where they paid their tithing and the Lord suddenly opened them the windows of heaven according to the promise in Malachi. Rather, they had to rely on the church for food from the bishop's storehouse because their financial difficulties continued. Beyond that, the Lord blessed them to be able to care for themselves. Evelyn received a promotion and Amato found a good job. Well, that's good news. Evelyn later lost her job. Well, that's bad news. Evelyn later lost her job, but they continued to pay tithing and to receive spiritual and temporal blessings for their faithfulness. Once, the bishop asked Amato how the family was doing financially, and Amato responded. Now, note the response. We're doing all right. Now, we're doing great. We're doing all right. Sometimes, we don't have much to eat, but we have enough. And more than anything, we trust in the Lord. So, although sometimes they don't have much to eat, they pay their tithing, and that's the important message from this article in the Enzyme. Now, if this type of attitude was mentioned only once in an Enzyme article from 2012, that would be bad enough, but no, the exact same message was given in General Conference. In a General Conference talk given by a 70 named Elder Valerie Corridone, April of 2017, he said the same thing in a different way by recounting a personal experience of his in which his father had to make the decision between feeding his children or paying tithing. Guess which decision his father made. Play the tape. Let me tell you how I learned that principle. After some events related to a civil war in Central America, my father's business went bankrupt. He went from about 200 full-time employees to fewer than five sewing operators who worked as needed in the garage of our home. One day, during those difficult times, I heard my parents discussing whether they should pay tithing or buy food for the children. On Sunday, I followed my father to see what he was going to do. After our church meetings, I saw him take an envelope and put his tithing in it. That was only part of the lesson. The question that remained for me was what we were going to eat. And although it's a little bit hard to understand there at the end, what Elder Cordon says is, as a little child watching my father pay the bishop, the tithing, the question for me was, what were we going to eat? So we can see that over and over again, the church promotes the message that paying tithing to the church is more important than paying anything else, even paying to have food 
for your children. And in this context, I have to remember that in April of 2018, President Russell M. Nelson traveled to Africa in order to deliver a message to the impoverished citizens and members of that part of the world. This is from a Deseret News article by Tad Walsh, published April 16, 2018, in which he notes that East African Mormons traveled hundreds of miles in dust-covered buses, bouncing and swaying over dirt roads and broken streets in order to hear President Nelson speak to them. As part of his message, President Nelson said, tithing can break cycles of poverty in poor nations and families. That's right, your nation is poor, your family is poor, but if you pay your tithing, you will break the cycle of poverty. Just give the church 10% of whatever it is that you make and you will not be poor anymore. Implicit again in this message is it doesn't make any difference if you don't have enough money to feed your family or your children, you pay your tithing. Here is actually what President Nelson said, quote, We preach tithing to the poor people of the world because the poor people of the world have had cycles of poverty generation after generation. That same poverty continues from one generation to another until people pay their tithing, unquote. So in any situation in the world in which there are cycles of poverty, the way out of that poverty is simple. Just pay 10% of whatever you make to the LDS Church and you will break that cycle of poverty. That's the message of President Nelson to the East Africans and to the world. And when I hear messages like this from the church, I have to think of what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 23. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. In other words, they pay tithing even on the smallest of their possessions. They pay it on the big stuff, they pay it on the little stuff, but at the same time, they have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. So the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees is that they are holding themselves out as being so righteous in paying their tithing, and yet they have omitted the important parts of the law. The important parts of the law aren't that you tithe down to your mint, your anise, and your cumin. The important part of the law is judgment, mercy, and faith. And you have omitted the judgment, in other words, the justice. That would be a King James Version word which would translate today as justice. They have omitted justice, they have omitted mercy, they have omitted faith. So in the name of their religion, they have managed to get rid of the most important part of their religion. Similarly, in Matthew 23, a little bit earlier in verse 4, Jesus excoriates the Pharisees for binding heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves, the Pharisees themselves, will not move them with one of their fingers. Does that have any relevance here? By taking the poorest of the members who don't even have money to put food on the table for their children and yet demanding and requiring that they pay tithing anyway, can that be seen as binding heavy burdens on the members of the church? that are hard to bear and laying them on the members shoulders. I will leave that for you to decide. At any rate, that is why paying tithing is number nine on my list of Phariseeism in the modern LDS church. Number 10 has to do with the New Testament story of Jesus clearing out the money changers at the temple. 
We're all familiar with the story. There are money changers and merchants and animals at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, they're not actually in the temple building itself. They are in the courts of the temple. They are in close proximity to the temple, and scholars believe that this was in the court of the Gentiles. So not actually in the physical structure of the temple is this taking place, but in the courts of the temple immediately adjacent to the temple. And for some reason, Jesus gets very, very upset about this. In fact, this is the strongest response he has to pretty much anything that we have recorded in the New Testament. He makes a whip, he drives out the money changers, he drives out the animals, he drives out the merchants, he throws over their tables, and he claims that they have taken his father's house, a house of prayer, and made it into a den of thieves. So it is clear that Jesus has very strong feelings about this practice going on in a location in close proximity to the temple. This is one of those rare stories that we find in all four of the New Testament Gospels. Now in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple happens at the end of Jesus' ministry and it is a very significant event because within one week of it happening, Jesus is dead. In John's Gospel, however, although the same story is told, it is placed at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not at the end of his ministry. Nevertheless, the story in all its salient details remains the same. So why is Jesus so mad at the money changers and the merchants? Basically because they are doing business at the temple. They are making money at the temple. They are selling things at the temple. Now let's break this down really quickly, all right? Why are there animals being sold at the temple grounds? The reason why is because it's Passover and all the Jews are required under the law of Moses to visit the temple and make sacrifice. By this time, there are Jews all over the known world and they have to travel a great distance from all sorts of different provinces of Rome in order to get to Jerusalem to the temple. There may have been as many as 300,000 or 400,000 Jews at this time visiting the temple. You can imagine there were huge crowds of people coming to the temple at this time of year to make sacrifice. Now the problem is, is that these people who are coming from all over the world, they cannot bring their oxen with them. They cannot bring their sheep with them. They cannot even bring their pigeons with them. Now pigeons were available to be used for sacrifice for people who were much poorer than the regular person. If you didn't have enough money to make a sacrifice with a sheep or an oxen, you could get by with a pigeon and that would do if you were poor. But the Jews traveling from all over the world to make sacrifice at the temple could not bring these animals with them. So where were they going to get them? Well, they were going to buy them at Jerusalem. And so merchants set up shops close to the temple in order to sell the animals that the Jews would need in order to sacrifice them at the temple to keep the law of Moses. So that's why there are animals there. That's why there are merchants there in order to sell the animals. Now, what about the money changers? Money changers are different than the merchants. The money changers are there because before the Jews who have traveled from all over the world can buy the animals, they have to have the correct currency. Because they live in different provinces, they have different currency that relates to those provinces. When they get to Jerusalem, they now have to change that currency into the local currency so it will be accepted by the local merchants when they sell them the animals to be sacrificed. And that's why the money changers sprang up. The money changers take the money from the different currencies around the world. They then exchange it for local currency. And of course, because they are providing a service, they have to take a cut in order to make money and make it worth their while. Otherwise, 
they wouldn't be doing it. So in terms of economics, all of this makes perfect sense. There really can be little argument that each of these aspects of the commerce that was going on in proximity to the temple was necessary in order for the temple to function with each of the visiting Jews making sacrifice as required. But it didn't make any difference to Jesus that all of this made economic sense. These people were taking the temple and making it a place of business. And that was one of the worst things that could possibly be happening from Jesus's point of view. Remember, this is the same Jesus who said, you cannot serve God and mammon. And yet the money changers and the merchants at the temple were attempting to do precisely that. So what does that have to do with modern Mormonism? Well, I think you know where I'm going with this. It has to do with City Creek Mall, a multi-multi-million dollar mall that the LDS Church built in downtown Salt Lake City in close proximity to the LDS Temple. Now the reasons that the LDS Church gave for building this mall all make complete sense financially. Their reasons were that downtown Salt Lake City was beginning to get run down, undesirable elements were beginning to filter in, it was starting to suffer from urban decay, and they didn't want this going on near the temple. So the LDS Church decided to do its own urban renewal project, and part of that project was by building this beautiful, beautiful mall in close proximity to the temple with very high-end retail outlets. Now on the one hand, I can understand how it makes economic sense what the LDS Church is doing and why it is they wanted to build this mall in close proximity to the temple and why it is they wanted to make it a nice mall with high-end retail outlets. But on the other hand, it doesn't seem that Jesus cared one whit about why it makes sense to be engaged in commercial activity in close proximity to the temple. It was the simple fact of trying to serve God and mammon that Jesus considered to be anathema. And the Jesus I read about in the New Testament would have been no more happy about money changers building a mall next to the temple in Jerusalem than he would have been about the money changers and the merchants selling animals for sacrifice in the court of the Gentiles. Now, when we're at church and this story of Jesus cleansing the temple is told, church leaders are all in favor of Jesus. It's go Jesus. Clean out that temple. But I sometimes wonder how the same church leaders would feel if some homeless guy in Salt Lake City went into City Creek Mall and started overturning the tables there and driving out customers with a whip. This homeless guy might not get crucified, but I guarantee you the police would be called by the church and this guy would be arrested and cooling his heels in jail before the sun went down. That's why I see the church's building of the City Creek Mall in close proximity to the Salt Lake City Temple as number 10 on my list of Phariseeism in the church. One, two, three, let's go shopping. Number 11 on my list has to do with the language of prayer. Now in the LDS Church, we have a very formalized language that we use in prayer. When we're speaking to God in prayer, we don't say you and your, we say thee and thine. And it's not something that's optional even. It is strictly enforced to the point where we have heard talks about this at General Conference. Here is Elder Oaks from the 1993 April General Conference admonishing the members of the church to use the correct language when we pray. Play the tape. The men whom we sustain as prophets, seers, and revelators have consistently taught and urged English-speaking members of our church to phrase their petitions to the Almighty in the special language of prayer. President Spencer W. Kimball said, in all our prayers, it is well to use the pronouns thee, thou, thy, and thine instead of you, your, and yours, inasmuch as they have come to indicate respect. 
Numerous other church leaders have given the same counsel. Now the irony of this insistence by the LDS Church that we use Old King James language when we pray to God is made clear when we understand what that language meant at the time of King James 400 years ago. I have become an amateur student of Shakespeare during the last 10 years or so. And one of the things I have learned while studying Shakespeare, which was of course written at the same time as the King James Bible, is that in King James English, the words thee, thy, and thou were not the formalized usage at the time. In fact, those words were used informally. Those were the words that one used for a friend. If one was talking to someone superior to them, to a king or someone of greater rank, the words you and your would be used, not thee and thine. And in a different part of his talk, Elder Oaks actually acknowledges this fact and nevertheless bulldozes ahead with his insistence that we use thee and thine because we're talking to someone who is greater than us. We're talking to God, so we need to use this special language of prayer. The irony is that when Elder Oaks admonishes the members of the church to use thee and thou in addressing God because God is greater and we need to use a special, more formalized language, that language was actually the informal language as it's represented in the King James Version of the Bible. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, after this manner, therefore pray ye, he gives the example of how we are to pray to God. And what he said is, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy is informal. Thy is personal. Thy is not the language of reverence and respect. It is the language of closeness and proximity. It is the language we use for a friend. So what Elder Oaks has managed to do and what the church does as a whole is turn everything around from the way Jesus counseled his followers to pray. He wanted his followers to pray to God in language that was personal and friendly, in a language that emphasized the closeness and the connection of the person offering the prayer and that God to whom he prayed. In contrast, Elder Oaks and the church want the members of the church to pray in such a way as to emphasize not the closeness and proximity of the person offering the prayer to God, but the distance between the person offering the prayer and God in a language that emphasizes the inferiority of the person offering the prayer and the superiority of God, exactly the opposite of the way that Jesus taught us to pray in the New Testament. Example number 12, finally we're getting to the end of the list, has to do with putting people out of the way. This is the way that Pharisees won their arguments against people with whom they disagreed. They put them out of the way. And no greater example can be given than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. From the Pharisees' point of view, Jesus kept calling them out publicly on their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy, and how in the name of their religion, the Pharisees would grind upon the face of the poor and use their righteousness and their strict adherence to their religious principles in order to marginalize others. Instead of using religion to help others, they used it to hurt others. And these others that the Pharisees hurt were the ones that the Pharisees were supposed to be taking care of in the first place. These were the members of their flock. These were the members of their own religion. These were the Jews that they were hurting in the name of self-righteousness. And Jesus insisted on continuing to call the leaders out on this publicly. Jesus was criticizing the leaders of the church even though the criticism was true. And this was not something that the Pharisees thought he should be doing. They tried as best they could to come up with answers to his arguments, but when all those answers failed and they were being made to look bad publicly, 
the Pharisees decided they had only one response left, and that was to put him out of the way. That was to conspire with the Romans to get Jesus crucified. In the words of a famous rock opera, But wait, we need a more permanent solution to our problem. And unfortunately, like it or not, this same tactic appears to be the same thing that leaders of the modern LDS church do to its members. First off, it admonishes them in no uncertain terms that they are not to criticize the leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. They then say that if a member has a question or issues, those are not to be aired publicly, but that member is to take them in private to the bishop, and then maybe to the state president if the bishop can't answer the questions, but the church member is not supposed to be talking about them in church class or airing them in front of other church members. But in situations where members of the church do not abide by those rules. They criticize leaders of the church. They do it publicly. And if they become popular enough, then the LDS leaders do the same thing to the members that the Pharisees did to Jesus. No, they don't crucify them, but they do put them out of the way. They excommunicate them from the church because that is their last resort. They cannot win the argument in the arena of ideas. And so their solution to the problem is the final solution. Excommunication is the final solution. If a member criticizes publicly the leaders of the church, the response is to excommunicate that member, put a scarlet A on the breast of that member, the scarlet A in this case standing for apostate, and then send them out into the wilderness with the hope that their voice will now be less effective among members of the church. Because at the same time, the leaders of the church are teaching the members of the church not to listen to those who have left the church. They are not a reliable source of information, when in fact the reason they were excommunicated is because they were too reliable a source of information and too loud a source of information and too popular a source of information. That's the reason they got excommunicated in the first place. So that's my list of 12 examples as to how the leadership of the modern LDS church is similar to the Pharisees of the New Testament. Let's go over those very briefly in summary. The first example was the high-backed red plush velvet chairs that the leaders of the church sit in at General Conference and how this is similar to the Pharisees of Jesus' day loving the chief seats in the synagogue, something that Jesus criticized them for. Number two was the white shirts that the men are expected to wear when they go to church. How this conveys sanctity, how this conveys purity, and how this signals virtue. And we compared that to the Pharisees who enlarged the borders of their garments and made their phylacteries broader in order to similarly signal to the members of the church their righteousness. Number three was the proscription against tattoos and earrings among members of the church. And how once again there seems to be an inordinate focus on what it is that members wear and how what they wear signals virtue if they follow the leader's instruction and signals a lack of virtue and a lack of righteousness if they do not follow the leader's instructions. Number four was the word of wisdom. And there we talked about how Jesus said that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Number five was the criticism that the Pharisees had of Jesus, that he hung out with sinners and those who were marginalized in society. And then we looked at a couple of statements from Elder Dallin Oaks and Elder Todd Christofferson, which seemed to teach the exact sort of thing, that we should not be hanging out with sinners, even if they are members of our family, even if they are our own children. 
Number six was the idea that apostles are so focused on their seniority within the quorum that they enter and leave rooms in order of seniority. That these are not trivial matters, but that if they are violated, then the person who violates these protocols and procedures needs to repent and get right with God. And also under number six, we covered Boyd K. Packer's unwritten order of things in which he crams approximately 10 more elements of Phariseeism. So number six actually is not just one element. It's about one plus 10 more thanks to Boyd K. Packer. There is a ton of Phariseeism going on in the LDS church. Number seven was the insistence of the LDS church on priesthood keys and authority and how when push came to shove in the fight between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Pharisees could not deny the reality of the miracles that Jesus was performing, they decided not to argue whether he was performing miracles or whether he was right. Instead, their argument fell back on what authority do you have to do this? We didn't give you this authority, so you obviously don't have the proper permission and authority to do what it is that you're doing. This is the same kind of thing that we hear more and more in the LDS church. We have to give you the authority to do things, otherwise you can't do them. We have the King's X. We have the priesthood keys. Number eight was Sabbath day observance. And there we talked about the penchant of the Pharisees in Jesus's day to take a basic law and complicate it more and more and more in order to show increasing degrees of righteousness. If you follow the basic law, well, you're one degree of righteous, but that's not enough. You have to keep piling on additional elements in order to show greater and greater righteousness. We compared that to how Mormons approach the Sabbath day and Sabbath day observance today in a similar way. Number nine was pay your tithing. How a similar thing happens with paying tithing. There are ways of paying tithing that show increased righteousness. And of course, the more righteous you are, the more tithing you pay convenient that. And in the same section, we talked about how the LDS church continues to insist on full tithing even from the poorest of members, whether in South America or in Africa or anywhere else for that matter, a practice that the Pharisees of the New Testament would probably have championed. Number 10 was the money changers at the temple versus the City Creek Mall in Salt Lake City. Number 11 was insisting on the formal language of prayer when addressing Heavenly Father. And number 12 was the pharisaical practice of putting people out of the way when you could not win the argument with them, or when they dared criticize the leaders of the church, even if the criticism was true. So in conclusion, what can we take away from this examination and comparison of modern LDS leaders to the ancient Pharisees? Well, a couple of points here. The first is that Phariseeism tends to promote conformity over charity. Knowing where you are in the pecking order tends to become more important than how you treat other people. When you focus too much on these kinds of things, you end up with a church where how you do things is more important than the things you do. And when you focus too much on these kinds of things, you end up with a church where who says things is more important than what is said. You end up with a church where the leaders consider themselves beyond reproach. And they come to be so full of themselves that they will actually have no problem stating publicly that the members are not to criticize the leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. And finally, when you focus too much on this kind of Phariseeism, you can end up with a church that is more concerned with the order you enter or leave a room than you are with members taking their lives because of your teachings 
on homosexuality. That is the danger of Phariseeism when taken to its logical extreme. And it appears that Phariseeism is alive and well in the LDS Church. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.